This morning's sermon texts are taken from selections in Matthew 26 and 27, which can be found on pages 831 through 834 in your pew Bible, or you can follow along in your bulletin. Hear the word of the Lord. Matthew 26, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Matthew 26, verses 20 through 25. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Matthew 26, verses 47 through 56. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber? With swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Matthew 27, verses 1 through 10. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, 
saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty, piece, they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. The grass withers, the flower fades. Amen. Let's pray. Father, in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 11, you lay a command upon each one of your people to rescue those who are being taken away to death and to hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. And so I want to ask you for grace and strength to be faithful to this command now as I preach and to hope in your power to be the rescuer and the one who holds people back from the slaughter. Oh, Father, I pray that in each of our lives here, whether we are people who are here professing faith in Jesus Christ or whether we are here uh, very openly and self-consciously as non-Christians, I pray that today you would grant in your great mercy what we have not earned but which we need so desperately and that is the clarity of mind and thought and heart that enables us not only to see the nearness of eternity, but to feel its weight. And so, Father, I ask you for this mercy. It is with fear and trembling that I do so. I pray that today would be the favorable time in the lives of many, that today would be the day of salvation for many today. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, the gospel according to Judas is a bartered away gospel. It's the gospel weighed in the balance and found wanting by the heart of somebody who was an insider. It's the gospel of the path to hell that begins on the inside of the church. It's the gospel of apostasy. What's apostasy? 
Well, apostasy is a sin that only somebody who is a professing Christian can commit. Literally, what apostasy means is to stand away from. So, in other words, it, it's a word that pictures the departure from a stance of faith in Christ that you formerly held. It's different from the unbelief of people outside the church. This is the unbelief of people inside the church. It is uh, the unbelief of treachery, if you will. Regular unbelief outside the church is uh, robbing God of glory. But apostasy is like embezzlement where you steal from the inside. And it always goes with treachery. An apostate is someone who, like Judas, begins inside the church but does not end there. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look with you at the, the, the case of Judas's apostasy. But as we do that, it's important, I think, for me to give you a pastoral preface. Because there's a right way. Well, there's a wrong way to look at Judas's apostasy, and there's a right way. Here's what the wrong way would be. To treat it like it's a window that you look through and gawk at something that happens to somebody else that has no relevance to you. That would be the wrong way. The right way is to treat uh, this account in the scriptures not like a window but as a mirror that God in his mercy is holding up to each one of our faces so that we can see ourselves and examine ourselves, obey Paul's command to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith, whether there is even a trace of a resemblance between our lives and the the structure and story of Judas's apostasy. This message is 100% relevant to 100% of the professing Christians in this room. So I want to look with you at the case of Judas's apostasy. And we'll, there are three parts, uh, three parts to what we're going to look at this morning. The first is the anatomy of apostasy. The second is the autopsy of apostasy, and the third is the biography of perseverance. So let's think first about the anatomy of apostasy. And in the account that we've been given in Matthew's gospel, there are three, I think there are three defining features of Judas's apostasy that, that stand out. Um, they are opportunity, God's sovereignty, and uh, responsibility, man's responsibility. So opportunity is the first one to think about, and it's very sobering. We've got to begin at the beginning. Uh, And the beginning is this. Judas, and this, this just needs to sink in, friends. Judas didn't begin as a traitor. He became one. Judas did not begin as a traitor. He became one. Disciple is how Judas began by Jesus' choice. But apostate is what Judas is how Judas finished by Judas' choice. For three years, 
Think about it. For three years, Judas had been welcomed into and enjoyed unrestricted access to the richest treasure room earth has ever known. For three years, he had stood shoulder to shoulder with a supernova. And yet, over that time, what happened? His heart grew colder. It grew darker. It grew harder. For every single day, for three years, Jesus, I mean, Judas looked the Lord of glory in the eye and yet never gave his heart to him. For three years, Judas lived in the closest contact with Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, and yet was content to only handle the outsides of those holy things. It is impossible to exaggerate. This is such a hard section of this message for me to work through because I kept looking for language to describe the, that would be adequate to describe the magnitude of the privileges that Judas enjoyed. And everything I would come up with was just so inadequate. His exposure and his experience, he was the ultimate insider. I mean, just think about what Judas saw what he heard, what he was entrusted with. Friends, his apostasy was fully informed. There was nothing ignorant about any part of it. Oh, what he saw with his eyes. The deeds of Jesus Christ he saw with his eyes. The feeding of the 5,000 countless healings saw him uh, cause the storm on the Sea of Galilee to, to, uh, to subside. Saw Jesus walking on the water. And then he saw Jesus' character up close. This, this is very sobering. Saw his compassion, saw his love, saw his courage, saw his gentleness, saw his patience. And this, was, this is what hit me with such force. He was close enough to see in those three years that there was absolutely zero gap between what Jesus said in public and how he lived in private. Judas saw that with his own eyes. Think about what he, what he received from Jesus, what he was entrusted with. If you go back to chapter 10, don't do it now, just verse 1 in chapter 10. When Judas is called along with the other 11 disciples, Jesus entrusts ministry to them. He entrusts his ministry to them. Judas is ultimately, I mean, friends, Judas was in the gospel ministry. He was entrusted with power by Jesus and presumably carried this out, right? To cast out demons, to heal diseases, to proclaim the word of the kingdom. And yet from the inside of that gospel ministry, having been entrusted by Jesus with Jesus' own ministry, he betrayed him. Spiritual power, at the center of spiritual power, and yet it was not enough to cause him to yield his heart to Jesus. Think about what Judas heard with his ears, all the teaching of Jesus Christ for three years. 
All of the yearnings of Jesus' heart. Come to me. Judas was there, right, in Matthew 11. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He heard that, and he heard Jesus' warnings. He heard Jesus warn about the one or the many who would come to him on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And didn't we cast out demons in your name? And Jesus' punchline on that warning is, you can do all that without doing the will of my Father. So depart from me. Judas heard that with his own ears. It is impossible to overstate the advantages that Judas enjoyed. Jesus said to his disciples in chapter 13, right? Your ears are blessed because they've heard something that many prophets and righteous people desired to hear and they never heard it. Your eyes are blessed because there are many, there were many prophets and many righteous people who desired to see what you have seen and did not see it. And what did Judas do with all of that blessing? How did he steward it? He stewarded it straight into cursing. So that's Judas's opportunity. Now, friends, connect the dots between that and our lives. Our advantages are not less than Judas's. They are greater. We live on this side of the cross. We live on the side of the cross where we look back and we see that for two millennia, the church of Jesus Christ has been built in the power of the Holy Spirit and has spread from Judea and Galilee through Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We see the power of the cross changing people's lives. Millions upon millions upon millions We see after two millennia that there is not a single promise of Jesus Christ that has fallen to the ground. How much more? How much more? How much greater is our opportunity? But it's not only opportunity that is part of Judas's apostasy. It's also the theme, there's also the theme of divine sovereignty. And this is very mysterious, but, but unmistakably clear. Jesus makes it very clear, right, that Judas's apostasy is no accident and it doesn't catch him off guard, but it unfolds according to God's sovereign plan. Look at verse 2 in chapter 26. Jesus says to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Look at that word, those words, delivered up. Well, if you go then to verse 21 when he is celebrating the Last Supper with his disciples, and he says, and as they were eating, he has all 12 of them there with him, he says, and as they were eating, he he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. It's the same word, the ESV is is translating the same word as betray in this context as it it translated delivered up in verse 2. So how is Jesus going to be delivered up? Jesus knows full well that it is by betrayal. 
he's going to be betrayed. And, and that's reinforced in verse 24. Look at verse 24. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. He is going to be betrayed, but betrayed according to a plan that has been announced in the Scriptures. Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed, not because he is able to read Judas's mind, but because he has been reading his entire life, he has been reading his father's mind, the purposes of his father's mind, as the scriptures have uh, declared it. He knows, but not only knows, he submits to his father's design that his death will be by betrayal and by being forsaken. Now, friends, there's no, there's no way around this. We're at an intersection of great mystery, but it's also an intersection where there is unmistakable clarity. There is no question, not a single question from the scriptures that Judas's apostasy is according to God's sovereign decree. At the same time that there is not a single question from the scriptures about whether or not Judas is completely morally accountable for his apostasy. Don't pit parts of the Bible against each other. Submit to both. Remember, some of you are math people and you don't understand poetry. And some of you are poetry people and you don't understand math. We all have things that are beyond our grasp. Do not sit as a creature in judgment of God. You aren't him. So divine sovereignty is a theme here, and it is mysterious. But just as Judas' apostasy wasn't an accident, from Jesus' perspective, so it wasn't an accident from Judas's either. And that brings us to the theme of responsibility. It won't do, friends, to say that Judas was the victim of God's sovereignty. The scripture won't let us do that. Judas was the victim of his own responsibility. It makes perfect sense. I get it, guys. I get it. I get it totally. I'm with you. I I understand why it is that we would want to treat Judas and regard him as if he were some kind of two-dimensional prop, like a cardboard cutout figure, or like he was a pawn, you know, who gets passively moved around on the chessboard of God's sovereignty, or like he's some kind of robot on automatic pilot in the divine drama, or a cog, an unseemly, you know, but a necessary cog in the divine machinery of redemption. I get it. I get why we would want him to be like that rather than as a three-dimensional person with a nature like ours and with access to Jesus Christ like ours. Of course, I get it. Why we would want it to be that way. But it's not that way. If it were that way, of course, that would enable us to dismiss Judas's example. We could comfortably distance ourselves from him and say, oh, he's unique. 
He's not. Neither Jesus nor Judas will let us dismiss the relevance of Judas's apostasy. Look at how Jesus interprets Judas's responsibility. Look at verse 24, particularly the second half. We've looked at the first half of verse 24, right? The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. That's kind of the divine sovereignty. He's going to go into betrayal. And that's by God's design written in the scriptures. But now look at the second. You know, you, you think, okay, so, so divine sovereignty, that's going to invalidate human responsibility. No. Look at the rest of verse 24. And Jesus isn't struggling with this, right? The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. You see, Jesus wouldn't say those things unless Judas was going to be totally morally accountable for his apostasy. If Judas was just a prop, if he was just a pawn, if he was just a robot, and he wasn't morally accountable, it would be utterly unintelligible for Jesus to then pronounce a woe over him. You don't pronounce a woe over a rock. You pronounce a woe over somebody who, whom God will hold morally accountable for his or her actions. You don't say it would have been better for that man if he'd never been born if he doesn't, if he's just a rock. According to Jesus, friends, not according to Mike Francis, according to Jesus, the reality of God's sovereignty doesn't relieve Judas or any, uh, anyone else of moral responsibility. God's sovereignty does not relieve Judas or anyone else of moral accountability. And even Judas knows this. Even Judas knows this. Look at chapter 27, verses 3 through 5. When Judas is overcome and filled with regret and remorse, what does he do? By the way, regret and remorse... Do props feel regret and remorse? Do pawns? Do robots or do cogs? No, because they don't have consciences. They don't have wills that are going to be held morally accountable by God. You only experience regret and remorse when you have a conscience, when you are morally accountable. And what does Judas do? He has this epiphany, this clarity where he realizes what he has done. He, he, he owns what he has done, but not in repentance. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And what he does next by committing suicide is something a robot would never do. So friends, responsibility is, is an an inescapable element of Judas's, of the anatomy of Judas's apostasy. And friends, as we think about how to connect this with our lives, we have not absorbed the significance of it unless and until we recognize and are willing to own that apostasy is not somebody else's peril. It's not somebody else's possibility. It's our own. Did you notice how in chapter 26, if you go back to verse 20, how Judas doesn't, how Jesus, were you surprised that Jesus doesn't out Judas publicly? Look, look at this. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. I'm in verse 20. 
And as they were eating, he said, truly, now he's addressing all 12 of them. He says, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Why does he let that ambiguity hang? He knows who it is. Why doesn't he pinpoint Judas? Because it's an, it's an even more important question when you look at verse 22. And they were very sorrowful. They were very sorrowful. He let Jesus. Friends, you have to look at this. Jesus is letting all the other 11 be sorrowful with the possibility that one of them might be the one. Now, why would Jesus do that? I think it's because he wants the possibility of apostasy to not be dismissed by anyone. For no one to say, that's a sin I would never commit. And friends, if you have a sin like that, let me warn you away from that peril. There is, the Christian knows that there is no sin that he or she, and I mean no sin, that given the right toxic combination that he or she is not capable of committing. Jesus wants the weight of that to be on his disciples. It needs to be on us too. So the anatomy, I mean honestly, friends, do you really think as you think about your life, Maria just shared a quote with me from John MacArthur that she saw somebody post on Facebook. If, well, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll save that for you later. That's, that's the, okay, if you, he said this. Sorry, that was unfair. If you could lose your salvation, you would. But don't get cocky. So let's move into the autopsy. What is it that produces Judas's apostasy? We've got the anatomy. There's three strands, great opportunity, sovereignty, and great responsibility. What is it in Judas's case? And there are two factors that I think stand out in Scripture's record of Judas that, that then will bear on each of our lives. And the first, the two, the two big strands that I see in Scripture as explanations of Judas's apostasy are his enchantment with sin and his disappointment with Jesus. Enchantment with sin. Turn with me to John chapter 12, which is on page 898 in your pew Bible, if you're working with a pew Bible. Now this is a story that picks up, that echoes what... Uh, Matthew is, is telling in uh, chapter 26 of his gospel, but there's some different uh, details in this one. And uh, um, a woman, there's a dinner, and uh, uh, Mary takes, takes some ointment and anoints Jesus. And then Judas, if you look at verse 4, look, we'll pick up at verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, which is almost a whole year's wages, and given to the poor? Now look at what John says next. I mean, he said, Judas sounds like a pretty pious guy right there. But look at what John says. He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. 
Now that's very interesting. John, who's writing his gospel as the last of the four, looks back and gives us this detail that the other gospel writers don't supply. And it is that apparently Judas was the treasurer of the common purse that, that the disciples and Jesus shared together and that he was an embezzler. He was a pilferer. And John is showing us, I think, he wants us to know that there was a lethal kind of logic that was very much alive and very unwell in the heart of Judas long before, long before he ever got to the point of actually approaching the chief priests and the elders about the possibility of betraying Jesus. And that logic, if you notice, notice the continuity, right? Judas was a pilferer. He was stealing money from the bag long before he ever got to the place where he made a proposal to betray Jesus. And notice that in both cases, it was money. Right? When Judas approaches, think about the other, the other guarantees that he could have extracted from the chief priest in exchange for betraying Judas. It didn't, uh, for Jesus. It didn't have to be money. It could have been power, it could have been protection, it could have been some kind of position. I mean, after all, if Jesus is going to be crucified, Judas's career is going to take a very dramatic turn. But he goes for money. And I think the continuity of that is not to be missed. After being trained, right, by, and, and numbed, trained and numbed, by countless repeated pilfering, repeated betrayals of trust. I mean, he's an embezzler. He's not coming up with a gun. He's, he's in a position of trust, and he is helping himself, right? And, and trained, his heart is trained by that sin of covetousness and theft. And in the end, it led him to the, part where he, to the point where he finally weighed Jesus Christ in the balance and found him wanting for a mere 30 pieces of silver. There's direct continuity. That's not accidental. So friends, do not underestimate the power of sin to enchant you away from faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And do not overestimate your power to resist that enchantment. That was happening I mean, does that not amaze you and terrify you? It should. For three years, Judas is in the shadow of Jesus' wings. He's living and traveling with him. He's learning from him. He's praying with him. He's ministering alongside him. And he's stealing from him. without confessing, without repenting. He's watching him forgive sinners, but not seeking the same forgiveness for himself. He's watching Jesus show compassion to other sinners, but he's not moved by Jesus' compassion to seek that kindness for himself. He's listening to Jesus' warnings about sin. Jesus says, it is better, if your eye causes you to stumble, it's better to lose the eye than to enter hell with your eye. If your hand causes you to stumble, is it, in, I mean, I just wonder if that imagery from Matthew 18 is directed at Judas, right? Covetousness and the stealing is better to lose your hand 
Judas is hearing these warnings, and, and yet he's, he's not moved to flee his own secret sin. For three years, he's hearing vivid warnings about hell, but it doesn't start him to fear and tremble, and it doesn't stop him from stealing. For three years, or for a good part of those three years, he's heard Jesus talk about his cross, his ransoming death, that, that he had come to give his life, to lay it down as a ransom for many, that Jesus' whole ministry, for three years, Judas has been surrounded by this, by this mission of Jesus, the purpose of which was to give as much as he possibly could of himself to and for sinners. And all Judas, even though he is bombarded, saturated, surrounded by that message, you know, the only thing that Judas can think about is how much he can take from sinners for himself. Oh, Oh, how survivable sin is. It's so hardy. It's so durable. It's like those, you ever seen those National Geographic specials when they, when they send that robot, those robot subs down to the bottom of the ocean, you know, where no human being could go and they have those, those totally hideous fish and those plants Right? There's no light, and there's, there's hardly any oxygen, and these fish are completely hideous, and these plants, all there are are these little volcanic vents, and the, the, uh, the water is so full of sulfur, and yet something about the chemistry of these plants enables them to live uh, almost anaerobically, you know, with, without any oxygen. It's just completely disgusting and hideous. Well, sin is like that. It can survive. And it lies low, and it lies in the deep, and it lies quiet, but it's aiming, my friends, at the surface. It has an agenda. Right? John Owen is right again. Which is almost like a redundancy. John Owen is right. I don't need all those words. John Owen is enough. Sin aims always at the utmost. So think about it. What was Judas's agenda in his pilfering? Here was Judas's agenda in his pilfering, and you guys know this because you know what it's like to be a sinner. You know, like I do, what it is to be addicted to sin. We're all addicts. We get it. Judas's agenda in his pilfering was, I'll just take a little bit. Because I'm hungry, and we didn't get enough bread. But you know what sin's agenda is in Judas's sin? Exactly how it ended up. Judas just thought he was going after a morsel or something, some little, some little betrayal that would enable him to get a little benefit. That was Judas's agenda, and he rationalized his sin that way because that's how we do it, right? But sin had an agenda beneath. Judas's agenda, and it was ultimately the destruction of his profession of faith in Jesus Christ and his eternal damnation. We think that we, I mean, sin, sin, was, sin was training, Judas didn't know it, but sin was training Judas to betray the Lord of glory. 
Each little shekel, each little denarius he took was a training mission that Judas wasn't aware of and it bore its bitter fruit, didn't it? We think that we can manage a little spark and all we have in mind is a little campfire. But sin, my friends, is thinking forest fire all the time. There are only... Friends, there are only two possible ways to go in life, not three. You are, as a professing Christian, you are either moving toward Christ in faithfulness or you are moving away from Christ in unfaithfulness. So many people think there's a third category that they will call different things. If you're, if you're out of a Baptist background, you call it backsliding. If, you're, if you've been trapped on Presbyterian Island your entire Christian life, you call it spiritual declension. But those are not three paths. You see, the problem with the backslider category or the spiritual declension category is is this is obviously wrong, right? I mean, this is bad, unfaithfulness toward Jesus Christ with your back toward Jesus and your face toward apostasy. You know, but backsliding is just kind of a, it's like this intermediate, uh, uh, it's disappointing, it's not ideal, but it's not perilous. This is not a biblical category. This doesn't exist. It's a lie. Okay? It doesn't exist. There are only two. The backslider's path is the same, my friends, as the apostate's path. The same path. Headed in the same direction. And the only difference between the person in this room who is cherishing sin right now with their back to Jesus Christ and Judas is that Judas is farther along down that road and has crossed the path of no return when he is so hardened by the deceitfulness of sin that he not only can't turn back but doesn't want to. It is never safe to have your back to Jesus Christ. If you cherish a sin, friends, if you cherish a sin, and you know how you know you're cherishing a sin? When you defend it with your anger, when you guard it with your fears, when you daydream about it with your mind, when you sing for joy when you're in the shadow of its wings, that's how you know you're cherishing a sin. When you cherish a sin, friends, it is never safe. You think it's a spark. You think it's only a spark. You can keep it. It's only a campfire. Friends, it is a forest fire. When you cherish a sin, I want you to know this. You are keeping apostasy in an incubator in your heart. It is not safe. And Judas is proof of that, my friends. See, the... You, you cannot, the way, the way this works is cherishing sin cannot inhabit the same space or the same heart as a heart that cherishes Christ. To the, this is a zero-sum relationship. To the extent you are cherishing sin, you, your love for Christ will be perishing. To the extent that you are cherishing Christ, your love for sin will be weakened. They cannot coexist. Do not think that you are strong or wise enough to do it. Friends, I want you to look at this cross with me. What was sin's agenda for you? What is sin's agenda for you? Sin has an agenda for you, my friends. 
And its agenda is your eternal destruction and your estrangement from God. That's sin's agenda, and the cross proves it. Sin will, will whisper to you. It will, it will flatter you. It will compliment you on your strength and your progressiveness. It will, it will soothe you with lies about the fact that you can, you can hide it. You can manage it. Do you notice how God never says you can manage sin? you got to kill it. Right? So even in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. What's the very next thought? God is faithful. There's only one rescue. God. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he, he will provide, not the way of management, not the way of containment, the way of what, my friends? Escape. Let that remind you, along with Judas's example, you can't manage this. You weren't meant to. Sin's agenda is your destruction. What is Jesus' agenda for you, my friends? Look at the cross. His agenda is to free you, to purify you as one of the people for his own possession, to cleanse you from all sin, to lift the burden of guilt, to cleanse your conscience by his substitutionary death, to deliver you from the wrath to come to keep you to himself, to purchase your eternal destiny and every gift before that that will keep you unto the end. There is no comparison. Sin is your enemy. Jesus is the lover of your soul. But that's not the only theme or strand in Judas's apostasy. There is also his disappointment with Jesus. And to be disappointed with Jesus is no less perilous to the soul than to be enchanted with sin. I think Judas had become disappointed with Jesus. I, I think that the Jesus, that the Jesus, Jews, this, I, I tried to write this in a way that it wasn't going to be a tongue twister and I think I didn't make it. <laughs> so forgive me. The Jesus Judas wanted Jesus to be was not the Jesus Jesus had come to be. And I think the last straw was when the woman anoints him in Matthew 26 and he accepts it and then says, what she's done is to prepare me for burial. Because at that point, Judas knows beyond a shadow of any doubt that Jesus is not only not going to avoid the cross, he's going to embrace it. He's going to embrace it, my friends. And what does that mean for Judas? Well, what could that possibly mean except that he had wasted the last three years of his life investing them in this man? What was it going to be like for him? I mean, think about it. He has, he has taken sides with a man who has simultaneously alienated both the, the Jewish people and the Romans. So when Jesus is gone, where does that leave Judas? Where is he going to go? This isn't the story that he signed up for. It is the story that Jesus has been telling all along. But it's not the story that Judas signed up for. And so let me ask you, friends, 
as I've asked myself all week, what are you thinking and feeling about Jesus Christ at this moment in your life? Is the Jesus you want Jesus to be the Jesus Jesus came to be? Or is there some other Jesus that you wanted him to be that he has not turned out to be? Uh, is it, are you disappointed with the fact that the biography of your life that Jesus Christ is writing doesn't match the autobiography that your heart had written for yourself? And do you look at Jesus Christ and say, you did not match my autobiography. This is not the story I signed up for. Friends, I I urge you to examine your expectations and to look at their origins, their source very carefully and be ready to repent. Because what promise is it? Be specific. Do you have some vague disquiet and disappointment with Jesus that kind of clouds your life, that, that keeps you from holding, uh, that, that keeps you holding your heart back from him? Friends, that's not safe. That's turning your back on him. That's heading in the same direction as Judas. You can't manage disappointment with Jesus any more than you can manage enchantment with sin. What promise is it? Be specific. Cross-examine your own heart. It's never God who, who, who is content with ambiguities and vagueness. It is always the evil one who is. Cross-examine your heart. Take your soul by the hand and put it under cross-examination and ask and say, where is the promise that you have trusted and that you believe Jesus Christ has broken? Has he promised you, has he ever promised you that following him would mean anything other than death? than losing? Has he ever promised you that there would be no suffering? Of course he hasn't. He promises life by dying, gaining by losing, and freedom by suffering. No, every promise of God is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. It is never yes and then no. You have no cause to be disappointed with Jesus Christ ever. He has never broken a promise to you. He never will. He doesn't hide a single thing from his people. So if you are disappointed, what do you do? Do you go hide no. What you do is you don't let your, your, your disappointments carry you away from him. You take all the emotional turmoil and all the pain and you, you let that disappointment carry you toward Christ with your disappointment. You think he doesn't already know? Hello? Do you think he can't handle it? What did he not handle? that belongs to you? What dark secret of your soul did he say, ah, this far, no further. I'm not handling that. Oh, friend. That cross means that all things are open 
and laid bare before the eyes of him who loves you. Let's move and finish with the biography of perseverance. This is the different story, right? This is the glorious counterpoint. This is the story that is the opposite of apostasy. And it's the biography of perseverance. And, And it's so important to understand this, friends, because our perseverance in faithfulness to Jesus Christ it, unto the end. It, 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 is the, it, is the, it is the beautiful fruit. Our perseverance is the beautiful fruit of a far lovelier root. And that, that lovelier root is Jesus' own perseverance in faithfulness unto the end for his people. Right? I need to clarify for you what I haven't been saying this morning. Namely, that someone who has been genuinely converted, that someone who has been brought into union with Jesus Christ, this is what I have not been saying. That somebody who is genuinely converted may fall away from Jesus Christ fully and finally. I have not been saying that because Scripture doesn't say that. In fact, Scripture says the opposite. My sheep, John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. I don't give them temporary provisional life. I give them eternal life. I don't promise them eternal life and then they have to, you know, get there. Like on a layaway plan, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's what Scripture says. What I have been saying is what Scripture says over and over again, which is that not everyone who professes saving faith in Christ actually possesses that saving faith. That not everyone in the church is in Christ. That it's possible to be inside the church and to only handle the outsides of the holy things of the gospel. Now, there are phrases that often get used in evangelical circles, phrases like eternal security and once saved, always saved. And they are phrases that people use to convey biblical truth, but they are perilous for this reason. They use unbiblical language to do so. And so they're fraught with the potential for misunderstanding and giving people a false sense of assurance of salvation in Christ that Scripture doesn't give them. My problem with those phrases is not that they don't describe scriptural truth. My problem with them is that they are both very passive. Eternal security, they both convey, and I, this is not just theory for me, I cannot tell you how many people I have spoken with over the years who treat phrases, they're like shibboleths, eternal security, once saved, always saved. They treat them as if they were passive things, that they, they cast a spell over the eternal God by praying the prayer. And now they've got that treasure. They've got, their, they've got their eternal security card that they hold up. Friends, this is passive. And I hope you don't hold to passive views of that. Because Scripture's view of a Christian's eternal preservation is 
filled with active, vigorous, painstaking, and costly perseverance. The very thing that Judas did not embody. That's why I don't like those phrases. Because they leave the potential for somebody to think, I don't have to do anything. But you do, friends. If you're in Christ, you will be preserved by God's power. Hallelujah! But that doesn't end the analysis. The question arises, how will you be preserved by God's power? God ordains, right, the salvation of his people, the ultimate end. But God doesn't only ordain the end, the ultimate end, without also ordaining all the intermediate means from point A to that finish. Listen to how the Apostle Peter describes this in 1 Peter 1.5. You who by God's power, good, we like that, by God's power, are being guarded, right? So we're passive, this is God, this is God doing it. You who by God's power are being guarded by God, but how does God guard us? Through faith. Who's doing that? Us. We're guarded by God's power for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. How is God's power working? How is it guarding us? By making our faith alive. Not just in a one-time event, but over the course of the Christian life. This verse right here, my friends, is not simply, and it's not even mainly about conversion. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Yes, it's true for the non-Christian for you to move across the most important line in the universe, which is the line separating the non-Christian from the Christian. But friends, you are protected by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Every Christian in this room needs to hear the word of Christ to keep stoking the fuel and the flames of faith. You, my brothers and sisters, must fight the good fight. You must finish the race. You must keep the faith in order to be saved. Because it's by faith that the power of God will guard you unto the end. You cannot, if you coast, you'll be like Judas. So where is that power going to come from? How will the power for perseverance enter and flourish in your biography? Where's it going to come from? Is it just going to be something that you just say, oh, I've got to gin this faith up. I've got to generate. No, friends, no, 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 no. Your faith is going to grow as you in response to your vision of Christ and his perseverance in faithfulness unto the end. It will be Jesus' biography that propels yours. Let me ask you an astronomy question, because it has been a couple sermons. Okay, this one's not hard. Okay, which planet, emphasis on the word planet, which planet is, is hotter, Mercury or Pluto? You're gonna get a you're gonna get this answer, right? It's Mercury. Why? Because Mercury is a better planet? No, it's a very simple reason that Mercury is closer to the sun. Friends, 
Jesus Christ is the blazing center of gravity in the Christian life. And a Pluto can't change. Pluto's never going to get warmer. It can't move its orbit. But you aren't Pluto. You can. You're morally accountable to God to move your orbit as closely as possible to that blazing center of gravity. And today is a wake-up call for some of you. God is summoning you, saying, you're too far out there. You're cold. The reason you're cold toward Jesus Christ is because you're not looking at him. You're not hovering. You're not moving into the shadow of his wings. He has opened up the shadow of his wings. He's invited you in and you prefer to stay on the periphery. Do not feel safe there. That's dangerous. That's living with your back to him. That's not a third path that you can feel comfortable with, slightly disappointed. That path doesn't exist. Oh, friends, everything Judas wasn't, Jesus was. He never deserted anyone. He did not apostatize. He made the good confession all the way to the end, 1 Timothy 6, 13. He did not abandon his people. He didn't even loosen his grip for one moment, even when he was under the greatest distress that anyone has ever or could ever experience. He did not loosen his grip on his people or his father for even one moment. Even in the deepest, darkest part of his agony, he was still placing himself under his father as his God. My God, my God. He didn't say, God, God. He didn't say someone else's God. My God. And on the cross, friends, Jesus was our helper. He was our helper in his perseverance. What he did there was he willingly and fully entered the ultimate and experience, the ultimate meaning of every dark corner that we've painted ourselves into. He endured at the ultimate end, the ultimate meaning for all the suffering that we've ever endured. All the suffering that we've ever endured or will ever endure is just an illustration of the eternal suffering that sin deserves. And Jesus went right into the heart of it, friends, for us, to be our helper. He entered into and knows the ultimate meaning of the darkest, most reeking dungeons that we have ever sought shelter in. And he went in there, friends. And he did not let go of his people. He persevered in faithfulness unto the end. That's his biography. So, when Judas was tempted, his temptation, like, like Owen says, his temptation was like a knife, and it came and it cut Judas's throat. But when Jesus was tempted, and the cross was the ultimate place of his temptation, do you know what he did with the knife that, that, that temptation brings? He disarmed sin, and he took that knife and cut his meat on the cross. And cut his people's meat to feed us and sustain our lives. He was faithful unto the end, my friends. In every single one of his temptations, sin was aiming at, at, a, at the utmost. What sin was attempting to do 
was to lead Jesus to the place where he would abandon his mission, where he would abandon his father, and where he would abandon his people. But in every one of those temptations, sin's agenda was met by Jesus' agenda, which was a very different utmost. Right? The eternal preservation of his people through his perseverance and faithfulness unto the end, to the glory of God his Father. Now, friends, that is the biography of perseverance that will beget ours for him. Get in closest orbit to it, and it will become your own. Let's pray. Father, Please rescue those who are being taken away to death and hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. I pray in Jesus' name.